Thank you, Van. Yeah, you guys go ahead and have a seat. Good morning to you. My name is Andrew Chronic. Uh, I am camp director at a little place in the woods in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina called Look Up Lodge, where your students have been coming to summer camp for the last six, seven, eight years. I don't know, something like that. But uh, man, it's just been a blessing to be here with you guys this weekend and just have the privilege to teach. Uh, man, it's just unbelievable. And uh, man, I can just can't say enough about how impressed I've been uh, with just experiencing Briarwood myself for the last 48 hours or so. Uh, you know, got off to a little bit of a rocky, rocky start when Cameron first asked me to speak. I shared this with the students. Uh, I wasn't quite sure about it. It wasn't any nerves about teaching God's word or anything like that. The man was wearing a Donkey Kong suit when he came, and he said, would you come and teach a uh, disciple now? And so I had to have a moment with my God and just say, Lord, is this a man who's a good youth pastor? who is just like, you know, submitting and having fun with his students, or is this his normal Thursday outfit? Like, is this like every day, like we're going to the dry cleaners? Uh, and luckily the Lord confirmed that it was a pretty cool dude. So uh, we ended up being able to have conversations throughout the fall and just build a, a little bit of teaching this weekend and things like that. But man, absolutely just 100% impressed with Briarwood Baptist Church after this weekend. The amount of you who have just come and served and loved on these students, whether it was just doing the hard work of just cooking and cleaning and all the different things like that, it was just, it was unbelievable just seeing how fast and how efficient everything was. I would say y'all should open up a catering business. It seems like y'all already have the whole chicken mole thing going down. Uh, so I think you're in good shape there, which by, that sounds like a mythical creature. Uh, like it's like a hybrid chicken mole that burrows into the ground and, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's 100% just fantastic. We have a story that we tell at Look Up Lodge about a beaver shark that lives in our lake. So I'm going to have to adopt the chicken mole. Maybe, a, you know, maybe we can write a children's book where the chicken mole and the beaver shark become friends. It'd be great. Uh, but man, it's just unbelievable to be here and just to watch you guys serve. And just, I mean, it's been an absolute blessing in my life. Uh, just to be here and share with you guys. And I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't know, but man, Cameron and Allie are absolute assets to this church and they are unbelievable student ministry leaders along with the rest of the volunteers and everything like that. And so on behalf of Look Up Lodge, man, we consider it a credit that somewhere like Briarwood Baptist Church would come and partner with us for a week of summer camp just because you guys really are making the kingdom of God known in Watkinsville. And so if you're new here, if you're looking for somewhere to plug in and serve whatever the recommendation of a man from the woods who needs a haircut and a shave means to you, this is a wonderful place that God is moving and working. Uh, I strongly encourage you to get involved here. At the same point, if you're here today and you are new and uh, you don't like anything that I have to say, I have no affiliation with this place besides they invited me here. So please give it another shot. Right, come back and hear Pastor Matt next week, right? But I'm super excited to be able to share with you guys and just invite you to the conversation that we've had this week. So you can go ahead and open up your Bible to John chapter 8. That's where we'll be spending most of our time this morning. Uh, but before we get there, just wanted to just spend five minutes just kind of reflecting and recapping the conversation we've been having with your students this weekend at Disciple Now. And so we started off looking at this verse, it's kind of a theme verse, it's in John chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. A spirit and truth is something that's a bit of a complex subject. It sounds simple, it sounds really cool. Like if you had a t-shirt, you'd probably impress all your friends. Like, I worship in spirit and truth. But it's something that's a little bit more difficult to put into practice. And that's actually things that even go back to how our brains work. Because our brains, the parts that signal emotion, work very fast. And it's a different part of the brain than uh, the part that would use logic. You know, it works more slowly. Uh, and so 
I don't really know what any of the psychological terms mean, but here's how it makes sense to me, and here's uh, what we blessed your students with this weekend. There's visual aids. That's right. Get excited. So maybe your head says yes, but your heart says no, or your head said no and your heart said yes. Which, by the way, if you want to absolutely scare every single human soul that you work with, what you can do is you can print off a man's face on four different pieces of printer paper and glue that to a poster board, and every single person that you work with will just walk up to you and say, what in the serial killer is going on right now? Is everything okay? Like, what's going on, right? But yeah, it seems like we have this dichotomy throughout all our lives where maybe our head's telling us to do one thing and our heart's telling us to do another thing. And unfortunately, that's just a reality for us living in a fallen world and living in a fallen state that's broken with sin, all right? Our minds naturally aren't able to compute things like God intended. So if you go back to the garden, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, everything was very good. We were lacking nothing, and we were connected to God in an incredibly special way. We were connected to this big theological word called his sovereignty, his knowledge, his control. We have to worry about all these different things. Adam and Eve never had to worry about what should I be when I grow up? What kind of car should I drive? Where should I go to college, right? Is this haircut working for me? Now, none of those questions were there because they had a relationship with the living God where they could go to him and trust his knowledge and trust his control on every single subject. But if you know your Bibles, it doesn't stay that way for long. In Genesis 3, they are banished from the garden. They are separated from relationship with God and separated from his sovereignty and control. And so that's where things start to get where it seems like it's kind of chaotic, where maybe we're leaning one way or we're leaning the other, and it depends on the decision. That's really what we see throughout the book of Genesis. So there's this character in Abraham. If you grew up in church or if you're familiar with anything like that, you've probably heard the Bible stories about him. There are moments in the book of Genesis where Abraham is fantastic. All right, absolutely a man who trusts God so much he's willing to almost sacrifice his son for him. There are also moments where Abraham doesn't trust God. He becomes scared and he lies and he says that his wife is his sister to try to protect himself. I don't know how your marriages are going. That doesn't go over super well at the chronic household. It's just like, is my sister, do whatever you want to with me, right? And so there's all these moments. You can go through all the book of Genesis with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph, where it's kind of just this Richter scale. We're just all over the place, sometimes good, sometimes terrible. And it seems like there's a solution that comes in the book of Exodus because God is gracious to give us the law. Now, the law, if I just say that word, scares me a little bit because I've got a little PTSD from some speeding tickets in my past. So when I think of the law, I see this, all right? And I see these men, and they do not believe me that I did not see the 45 sign, all right? And I was going 63, but I didn't see the sign. So, sir, I, I apologize, but you should let me go. That's not this kind of fear kind of thing that goes in my heart. That's completely incorrect. Number one, for law enforcement, they're there to serve and protect and bring about justice and things like that. But even in the Old Testament law, David says things like this in Psalm 119, right? So in verse 3, he says, How sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. And sometimes we can look at the Bible like this big book of rules that's oppressive. That's not it at all. That's not how David views it. He says, God, you are so kind that even though we're separated from your sovereignty and your control, that you would give us 613 Old Testament laws that we could know in the situations that we have questions about how we should respond faithfully. It's like honey to our lips because God wants us to walk in the ways of life. He wants us to walk with him. And so he reveals the law to us so that we have the opportunity to do that. And so it should add up of if we have our head and our heart and we submit it to the law. If we have these three things, it should add it up to... Touchdown, baby, let's go. We should be perfect, should be set. We don't need anything else. 
But there's bad news, and it's a recurring theme throughout the Old Testament, and Jeremiah sums it up really well in chapter 17 when he says that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? It's the same idea that Paul talks about in Romans 8, that although the law sets forward the ways of God, the law can't make us follow those ways. The law can't cure our deceitful heart. And there's something that's just intangibly just, just broken with us. And there's all these examples throughout the Old Testament where hearts lead people astray, whether it's the people in Exodus 32 when they worship the golden calf, whether it's David with the incident with Bathsheba, whether there's Solomon with 700 wives and 300 girlfriends, whether it's all these different things that ultimately leads to the people in 2 Kings chapter 25 when they are taken prisoner of war and captive by the nation of Babylon as a sign of God's punishment. And so we fast forward into history and we meet these people in the New Testament they are called the Pharisees. And they decide that they are actually going to do something kind of creative. They are going to just trust and worship the law and they are going to commit their lives to it. But they're going to eliminate their heart. They're going to eliminate compassion. Because their heart's deceitful, they just decide to push it to the wayside. And so this is where we get stories and things like that, that the Pharisees were expected to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Yes, even that passage in Leviticus that we can't seem to read in our Bible reading plan, and we just, you know, we give up on the whole thing. Like, they had to memorize that, and we can barely even read it, right? They had to memorize all these different things. Elders were expected to memorize the entire Old Testament, but they forgot about the love of God. They forgot about the whole story of the gospel, the story that God is continually loving his creation that is made in him, made in his image. And so you get these stories, like in Mark chapter 3, where Jesus heals a paralytic man. But then they come to him and say, why did you do it that way? Why did you do it on the Sabbath? Why did you say your sins are forgiven? And I cannot imagine being so compassionless of seeing someone with some sort of disability and Jesus would come and heal them and say, whoa, 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 you shouldn't have done that. There's no heart in the Pharisees, and that's where we actually pick up the story in John chapter 8, where Jesus has this encounter with the Pharisees that I think he shows us a beautiful example of what the truth in love is. I think he shows us a beautiful example of what it means to live in the spirit and the truth. So we can start in verse 1 in John chapter 8. But Jesus went down to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again. And all the people who were coming to him... He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked him this in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said again, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw the stone at her. And he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. So we'll look at this story from two different angles this morning, one from the Pharisees and one from the angle of the woman who's caught in adultery. So the Pharisees in the moment, they feel like they have Jesus trapped, right? They've brought this situation to him to try to have something to condemn Jesus. And so they feel like he should have this reaction. If you watch The Office with Jim Halpert, they feel like he should just be like, oh, 
What do I do? Right? It's the same reaction that I have in my life where my wife will ask me at 3 o'clock today, I guarantee it, did you stop at Tanger in Commerce on your way down to Watkinsville on Friday? It's like, oh, yep, bought two pairs of shoes, actually, uh, but I had a gift card, had birthday money, I promise. Right? They expect Jesus to start wrestling and start trying to look for answers, and they feel like they have them trapped. Because if you look in the Old Testament law in Leviticus 20, it says that that woman caught in adultery very well should be put to death. And so if Jesus decides to let her go, they can just say, he doesn't uphold the law. He doesn't care about the Old Testament law. But on the flip side, if they say, yes, go ahead and stone her, he can go to Exodus 20 and they can say, well, Jesus committed murder. And so it seems like the perfect trap that they've set, but Jesus doesn't respond with the law because he's not just the law. He's the one who fulfills the law. He doesn't respond with conventional or worldly wisdom where it feels like he's trapped. He responds with the spirit and the truth. He responds with the truth. And he can turn the situation back on the Pharisees. And he can ask them to examine their own hearts with that statement, whoever among you doesn't have any sin should be the first to throw the stone in her. And man, what a heart check for some of us who can have so much judgment or so much anger or animosity for some bitterness and some different relationships or some different kind of archetypes of people that we see in our lives that really just get us frustrated. But we can forget that no matter how frustrating that person may seem, no matter how hostile to God they may seem, that is just another sinner in need of grace the same way that we once were. And so Jesus' statement to the Pharisees is something like this. We can stone everybody for, some, for their sins. We're going to need some more rocks. If we're going to stone everybody with their sins, which one of you wants to go after her? And so the Pharisees realize, okay, he's caught us. We thought we had the trap and he turned it back around on us because we're not without sin. We aren't perfect with the Old Testament law. We're in need of something bigger than ourselves if we're going to meet God's standard of holiness. And so that's where they walk away sad, starting with the elders, because they know that they have called him. But look what they call Jesus in verse 4. And they say, teacher. They view him as a teacher and just a teacher. And if Jesus is just a teacher in our lives, if he's just a historical figure, if he's just a man who has some good rules that maybe we should follow of love one another, we will never submit to him as he should be submitted to. We will never trust him to give the control over in our lives because we'll start to pick apart Jesus and we'll take the things that we like and we'll leave the things that we don't like over here. And guess what? If Jesus is just a teacher, that's a viable option, all right? If any of you comes up to me after service today, and we're not talking about like the things I read directly from scripture, that's a different authority. But if you come up and you have a problem with something that I said up here, I'm a man with a public school education from Stevens County, a high school diploma, and my prized possession is a 35-pound obese beagle named Ranger. All right, I don't have any authority, right? You can win that argument. I don't have any authority at all. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. You can win that because I am just a teacher. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is the truth, we don't have an argument. If Jesus is the absolute truth being revealed to us, then we can either submit to that or we're not living in the truth. We have to understand that Jesus doesn't allow for us to go with the modern culture ideas of my truth where we can make up the things that we want to follow. 
If he's saying, I'm the truth, then we have to submit to that or we are not people of the truth. But at the same point, there's more to the story because we see it from the scenario of the woman that's caught in adultery. And she knows, she is not, you can look at John 8, she is not accused of adultery, she is caught in the act. She knows that she's in her sin. But Jesus doesn't condemn her. Jesus offers her grace. Jesus removes the shame of her accusers from the situation where it's just her and the Savior. Her and the creator of the universe. And look what she calls Jesus in verse 11. She calls him Lord. It's a beautiful idea. It's a completely different idea from Jesus just being a teacher. If Jesus is Lord, what we are confessing is that he is the master, that he is the ruler, that he is in complete control, that he is in his essence, not just his words or anything like that, but his being is the sovereignty of God, that control, that power, that knowledge that he can lead us back to that relationship where we're connected in a relationship with God that we had or we would have had in Genesis 1 and 2, right? And it's something that is always difficult for us to do when we're thinking about control, control of our lives, control of our futures, whatever it may be. But can I ask you a question, man? Can you look on your lives and can you actually say that you feel like you're in control of it? And I gotta be honest with you. I look at plenty of scenarios in my life and I'm not in control of any one of them. I have a son who will be two in a couple weeks, uh, and we're in that fun stage of life where he will just run everywhere, but he's not awesome at running yet. Uh, and so he'll trip over his own feet and just, I mean, just a pow, man. Like, I'm talking like I'm in the other room, and like he went through the floorboards on that one. Like, he absolutely, he ruined himself. <laughs> I mean, like, that was a big fall. He gets right back up, and he runs, all right? I'm 29 years older, all right? I'm 31 years old, and I can't stop tripping and falling, this is a true story. Thursday, going to the cafeteria at Lookup Lodge for lunch. I tripped on the top step and fell down and stubbed my toe. I was calling for people to amputate it, man. Like, it hurts so bad, right? And if I was control of anything in my life, do you not think that I would stop tripping and stubbing my toe? I can't handle the small stuff. I play golf. The golf ball is this big, and I cannot control where that thing is going. Do you think I'd be hitting it into the water and wasting all my money buying new golf balls? No. But I can't handle the small things in my life. There's no way I can handle the big things. Right? I can't handle the future. I can't handle health and what the doctor may diagnose me with. I can't handle if I eat vegetables every single day and then the same bus is going to hit me. But what I can control is I can submit. And the beautiful freedom that comes in submitting, it sounds oppressive to give over control, but God is a good God who wants us to have life. That I can submit and say, you created me, you know how many hairs are on my head, and you know exactly why you put me on this planet. And so I can submit to that, I can submit to that knowledge and that plan, and I can make the confession that he is Lord of my life. And I can know, I can trust that whatever my life may look like, if I live to be 137 or if I live to be 37, that God is in control and that is exactly how it was supposed to be. And this is the difference in the confessions because God is not a big, mean God who wants to have a bunch of rules. He's not just a teacher who's trying to be oppressive or tell you have, where you have to live your life. He's a God who loves you, who sees you in your brokenness. And however you may be feeling that brokenness, 
Just know that it's sins and things that you're struggling with that you are bringing sin into the world or you feel like the world's beating you up. You feel like you're being oppressed in some ways by the people around you. You feel like your mental health is off or whatever it may be. That God sees every single ounce of our brokenness. And he says, I want to fix that. I want to be a solution to that. And I don't want you to continue to walk around in the pains of death, but I want you to have the light and the life of eternal life. And that he would come down and he would say to us, I don't condemn you for your sins, but he would say that you can go and you can sin no more. You can walk with me and submit to me, and you can walk in the ways that you were intended to before the creation of the world. And so there's some questions for us in that, man. First question is, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just a teacher? Is he just someone that your grandparents used to teach you about? Is he just someone that other people seem to follow, but you're not quite sure about him? And if he's just a teacher, then where are you going to find the spirit and truth? The world can be hard, man. The world can be mean. It can beat us up. Where are you going to find solution to that? Where are you going to find resurrection? Where are you going to find restoration? If Jesus is who he says he is, you can find it in him. And there's thousands of years of human history where people will try to chase after money or status or fame or whatever it may be to solve the brokenness in their lives, and not a single one has been successful. Not a single one has been successful in defeating the pains of death. So you can try it. I don't like your odds. I don't tell you that as somebody trying to be judgmental in your life or somebody who's being a metaphorical Pharisee. I tell you that one as someone who's met the grace of Jesus. And there's no things that you need to do before you come to Jesus of, well, I'll clean this up and I'll go and I'll sin no more and then maybe God will accept me. But the free gift that he offers to us is there is not a single thing that we could do to earn his favor. There's not a single thing that we could do to pay for our sins even though the Pharisees were memorizing the entire Old Testament, there wasn't a single thing they could do to take care of their sins. And so we don't need to make that mistake of thinking he's just a teacher. What we need to do is we need to confess him as Lord. And if Jesus is Lord of our lives, the question is, what do we need to submit to him? The next verse is John 8, 12, which you might be familiar with, where Jesus says that he is the light of the world, here to cast out the darkness so that we don't have to walk in that any longer. But how many times in our lives do we actually ask Jesus to dim that light a little bit? Why don't you go ahead and turn that down because I would like to walk in this much light, but I'd like to hide this sin or whatever it may be in this darkness back here. But the freedom of the gospel and the invitation that God gives to us is that we don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to compartmentalize. We can unify ourselves. We can unify our heads and our hearts underneath the spirit and the truth. We can walk in freedom with him. Because you may walk out today, this afternoon, into chaos. You may walk out into tough situations, but you can walk out with hope. You can walk out with the promise of restoration. If not today, on the other side of eternity, you can walk in the promise of resurrection that you serve a God that is more powerful than the ways of the world. And so what do we need to submit in our lives, man? What do we have the vice grips on that we just need to let go and we need to submit to our God? I can tell you for us, man, my life personally, my wife is talking about, you know, wanting to stay home with our little boy. And that's a tough situation. 
we're trying to wrestle through. It's just like, okay, does this mean I get a second job? Do I have to sell things on Instagram now so we can pay the bills? What's going on? Or option two is God, you know, my wife feels like God is calling her to go and be a stay-at-home mom, raise our boy in a loving family, right? Maybe that's what he's calling her to do. Maybe it's not what he's calling you to do. I'm not saying that as far as a judgment or anything like that. But if I'm someone who says, well, this is what God's calling you to do, but I need you to go out and make some money, I don't feel like I'm a provider in that. And so, man, that's just tough. I'm wrestling through that. But here's another option. I can go and I can read in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus promises to provide for the lilies of the field and Jesus provide for the birds of the air. I can submit to that. I can trust that and say, yeah, we'll figure this out. Yeah, we can trust in God and he will lead us to where we need to go. If that's a second job, great. But God is continually faithful to reveal himself to us when we submit to him as Lord and not just a teacher. Maybe it's the people in our lives that we know that we need to be loving, particularly students as you're going out. Maybe you've seen the beauty of the gospel this weekend or you felt that calling in your lives. Man, who are the people in Oconee County schools that need the good news of Jesus? And you know what? Maybe it's a long commitment. Maybe it's not going to be at the lunch table tomorrow and be like, Jesus sounds great. Maybe it's a three to five year commitment of love and blood and sweat and tears of a relationship and a friendship with arguments and wrestling and all these different things. But we can submit to King Jesus and know that's exactly where the kingdom of God is calling us to be. We can move from a judgmental Pharisee trying to use this woman to set a trap from Jesus. And we can move and seeing her as an object is seeing somebody who God loves. He doesn't condemn who he wants to extend his grace to. And so wherever we are, whatever we're doing, I pray that we'll find the spirit and the truth. That we won't believe the lie that we have to live our lives divided or compartmentalized, but we can unify under a crucified and a risen king to walk in the spirit of truth, to walk in the light of life, to walk in eternal life because of what he's done for us and who Jesus has proven himself to be with his death and his resurrection. And so as the band's going to come and sing one last song for us, I just hope that you'll just take this time just to reflect with the Holy Spirit, just to reflect with the Lord. What is the areas or who are the relationships or whatever it may be that we need to submit to him and his leading? And if you're here and all this is completely new or it's never been something that you've accepted before, that today might be the day that you can move from t- Jesus is just a good teacher to he is a savior and risen king, so he can be Lord and Savior of your life. I know the staff at Briarwood would be more than happy to have that conversation with you. I certainly would love the privilege to do that as well if we could be a help of that. But that we would just have a moment with our God where we just submit to the spirit and truth and we could walk faithfully with him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the ways that you move and work. God, I just thank you so much just for how you have revealed yourself to us as the spirit and as truth. I thank you, God, just, Lord, for the many ways that even when my life seemed like we could not submit you, you made a way. And if there's people here today that are feeling like there's no way that we could submit with this problem or that, that you would just remind us of your graciousness, that you remind us of your love, God. And if there's difficult situations that we're walking through, God, that we would be able to trust that you are in control and you are leading us to something. We trust that you're a good God who wants us to have life, and we can worship you as so in these moments. In Christ's name, amen. Stand with us, church.